If you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 103. I told you we could spend the rest of the summer speaking about Psalm 103. We will not spend the rest of the summer in Psalm 103, but we will at least spend one more week as it regards uh, a specific passage within Psalm 103. So, here we go. Psalm 103, let's read the entire psalm. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, and all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And we say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. All right. So, Here's the section of Psalm 103 that I want us to take up today. So last week we talked about the benefits of you know, being in Christ, being with the Lord. When we think about being um, in Christ or being with the Lord, we think about what is done for us. In verse you know, 3, it's who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Those are benefits, right? Those are huge benefits in the life of a believer, things that we hold our hat on, you know, things that we firmly grasp onto. And yet there's a section that is down in verse 17, and it goes, well, well what do I have to do, or, or what is my response in the midst of it? And certainly our response is worship, where we worship because He alone is worthy of our praise, but there's also a place in Psalm 103 that I didn't even talk about last week, not because I was trying to, you know, sell you a timeshare or anything, but because I was trying to, I, w- I want to talk about it today. In verse 17 and 18, it says, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Now we think about the fear of the Lord as as one of respect and awe and love of the Lord. You know, in in Proverbs it says, the beginning of wisdom is to fear the Lord, to respect and to honor and to uplift him. And his righteousness to children's children, 
right? I mean, that's, that's a beautiful thing about the covenant. The covenant is not only made with, with those who receive the covenant, but it's supposed to be for our children and for our children's children. And so far, we're like, yeah, I get all that, man. Like, that's all good news. I, I'm on board with that. And then it says this, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. You're like, huh. To those who re- keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. So this is the idea today. What are the benefits of obedience for the children of God? How are we called to obey? So uh, Kevin DeYoung, his book, The Whole in Our Holiness, says this. He says, it sounds really spiritual to say God is interested in a relationship, not in rules. But it's not biblical. From top to bottom, the Bible is full of commands. They aren't meant to stifle a relationship with God, but to protect it, seal it, and define it. Never forget, first God delivered the Israelites from Egypt, then he gave them the law. God's people were not redeemed by observing the law, but they were redeemed so that they might obey the law. Think about that. Or, let me say it in this way. Good works, or our obedience, right? Good works and obedience are not a condition for our salvation, but rather they are a characteristic of our salvation. Let me say that again. Good works and obedience are not a condition for our salvation, but rather they are a characteristic of our salvation. So let me just get get right where we are, right? So we talk about good works. I mean, there's, there's an issue within the church. Like, so what am I supposed to do? What are good works? Let me say this. You cannot save yourself. It is an impossibility. You know, in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it says, For you have been saved by grace through faith, and it is the gift of God that no one may boast. But it also says this, if you keep reading a little bit further, and, and if you have your Bibles, you can turn over to Ephesians 2, because you'll see this, and we quote this a lot. Again, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So we are saved by the gift of God through the meritorious work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. We believe in Jesus, and his righteousness is credited to our account. Our sinfulness is credited to his account, and it's a really good deal. But listen what it goes on to say. Not a result of works so that no one may boast, for we, meaning the people of God, the children of God, are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When we think about the idea of good works or obedience to God's commands, sometimes we feel as if the commands of God are difficult. They're weighty and they just push us down, but they're not meant to do that. The commands of God are meant so that we might have a relationship with God, so that we might flourish in this world that he has created, and so that we can walk with him. Now, there are benefits that occur when we obey the commands. There are huge benefits. But again, let me, let me say one more time, good works and obedience are not a condition for our salvation. And we mix this up a lot, but rather they are a characteristic of our salvation. 
If you trust and believe in Jesus, then you will do good works. But your good works in no way save you. Can't do it. Uh Uh-uh. Not going to happen. Okay? Now, when we think about obedience, let's talk about obedience a little bit. And I'm sure everybody this morning was coming to church thinking, I can't wait to hear about obedience. This is going to be so amazing to hear about the obedience that I'm called to. But, but I hope that I can, I can give you some thoughts. Let's talk about the secret to obedience. Here's what the secret to obedience is. J.C. Ryle, one of, my, one of my heroes, says this. The secret to obedience is love. Love is the grand secret of true obedience to God. When we feel towards him as children feel towards a dear father, we shall delight to do his will. We shall not find his commandments grievous and work for him like slaves under fear of the lash. We shall take pleasure in trying to keep his laws and mourn when we transgress them. None work so well as those who work out of love. The fear of punishment or the desire of reward are principles of far less power. They do the will of God best who do it from the heart. I love what he says there because he says, the fear of punishment or the desire of reward are principles of far less power than love. The secret to obedience is love for the Father. So let me uh, relate it in this way. First, obedience draws us into relationship with our Father. Obedience draws us into relationship with our Father. Um, when I think about this particular um, point, uh, I think about, you know, time, uh, and I, I might even get like teary-eyed and I got to stop, but, you know, because I think about as a young child, um, my, my, I lived in, on a farm in Virginia, and I was able to live next door to my grandparents. And so my grandparents lived next door, and my, my d- mom and dad, I lived with my mom and dad. Uh, and, f- and for a long time, you know, I would have two dinners every night. It was great. You know, I'd eat with my grandparents, then I'd go home and not eat a great meal, you know, and I would figure it out. Um, but one of the things that my, my dad did, uh, and my granddaddy, uh, you know, would do, is they would cut wood. Right? So they would split wood. So my dad would go out. We owned a small farm, maybe like 70 acres. And they would you know, fall trees because it was you know, it's in Virginia, so there's tons of trees. And so we would you know, use that to heat the house. And so my dad would go out. And I just loved, I loved doing chores with my dad, like five, six, seven, eight years old. I just remember my dad saying, hey, I'm going to cut down a tree. And I'm like, I'm coming. That's going to be amazing. We're going to cut down a tree. And so my dad would like bring us over and, you know, he'd say, bring me the chainsaw and we would cut the tree down and we'd, t- we'd cut the tree in sections or my dad would cut the tree in sections because even to this day, my dad doesn't let me use a chainsaw because he doesn't think I'm responsible. Um, but uh, we would cut the tree and we'd cut it in sections. We'd bring it back and then my grandfather would sit on a log and he would run the wood splitter. And he would run the wood splitter while my dad would, would, would you know, take the bigger logs and we'd cut them down and he'd run the log splitter and then, you know, they'd come across and then he'd throw them to me and then I would stack them and we would do this. Now, this is work, right? This is hard work. But I will tell you that obeying my father and being near my grandfather gave me great joy as a young child. I just wanted to be near them. And oftentimes 
one of the things that would, would occur is that my dad, uh, again, we had a farm, we had a big front yard, is if we did enough chores, then we would get to play, right? So if, if, if we did enough chores and we got enough woodcut, we get to play. And one of the things that we love to play is we love to play baseball. And my dad would hit me endless ground balls in our front yard. And one of the things that was one of my most prized possessions was my dad gave me his old mitt. And so from the time I was like maybe five or six to the time I was like maybe nine or 10, I had this huge Wilson baseball glove that looked like a highlight stick almost. It was so big, you know, like I should not have been using it at all. It was, it was worn and weathered, but it was my father's. And I just remember if we did enough chores, he would just go out and he would hit endless baseballs. And he would get to the point where like, we're not going to come off the field until I get one by you. So I just remember jumping and leaping and I was in much better shape and much more agile back then. And I just remember getting better and better and it was so much fun. And all it was about was relationship with my father and it was based upon the fact that he wanted to be near me and the ability for me to enjoy the time with my father was, was prefaced by the fact that I was obeying and serving and loving the time that I had with him. Did I really like cutting wood? No. I didn't really love cutting wood, but I loved being with my dad and my grandfather. I loved it. And one of the things that occurs in the midst of the obedience to the Father, the obedience draws us into a relationship with our Father. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 um, it says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. We get that. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You know, this idea of, of, of good work and, you know, God is in relationship with us and, and we enjoy time with him so that we're doing good works. Or let me give you an example. Um, there's this... Um, this beautiful aspect of, you know, when, you know, you, how many of you, uh, you shouldn't raise your hand for this, okay? So don't do it. It's a rhetorical question. Some of you got up this morning and you're like, you know what? Maybe I should just take Sunday off, right? Maybe, you know, it's been a hard week. You know, it's been a difficult week. You know, maybe we should just take Sunday off. And yet I will tell you that after you leave worship, at least I hope you do, after you leave worship, you go, that's where I was meant to be. That's where my soul was revived and renewed. That's where I was reminded of the promises of God. That's where I'm reminded that I am adopted into the family of God. And, and I, I got to sing songs of praise with my brothers and sisters, and we are reminded of all the benefits of our salvation. And you leave and you go, why did I even have a fleeting thought within my mind that I shouldn't go to worship today? Now, I would say that that's you know, the, the unholy trinity of the world, the flesh, and the devil trying to conspire against us to keep us from the good things of God. Or how, how many of you um, have ever thought about small group or life group? You know, and life group, it's like five o'clock on a night when you have life group, and you go, you know, I'm just not sure I'm going to go to life group tonight. It's been a hard day. It's been a difficult time. Then you go to life group, and on the way home from life group, you go, why did I doubt that this would be a good thing for my soul? As a matter of fact, this is the very place that I need to be. I'm encouraged in my faith, and it's a wonderful thing, even though the next week you know that there'll be a party that goes, I shouldn't go to life group today. I'm tired. I don't need to be a part of a life group. I don't need to be a part of the community of faith. I don't need to be doing these things. And what happens is, you know, when we give into those things, they actually take away and rob us of joy. Now, the other thing I want us to see is that not only does 
obedience draw us into relationship with the Father, but obedience leads us to a joyful relationship with our Father. If you have your Bibles, turn over to John chapter 15. There are a couple places I want to show you, uh, one of which is John chapter 15, uh, verse 9. Notice what it says about, and this is you know, the abide in Christ chapter. It's a wonderful chapter. You know, if, if a man remain in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. You know, I am the vine, you are the branches. That's where we are in, in John chapter 15. But notice what, what Jesus is saying. He says in John chapter 15, verse 9, he says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Abide in. Now, abiding has this connotation of remaining, uh, rejoicing, and resting in Christ. That's what abide means, right? Abiding means remaining, resting, and rejoicing in Christ. So that's what abide is. But then it says, you know, so abide in my love. And then it says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now notice what it says in verse 10. It says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So there's this aspect of the more we obey the Lord, the more that we are experiencing the love of the Lord in the midst of our life. And then it goes on to say, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So now this causes me to go, you know, just I shake my head a little bit. So the commandments and the law of the Lord in the midst of being in Christ are meant so that our joy might abound. That is not the way most people think of the law of the Lord. Most people think of the law of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord, as being prohibitions rather than being places of grace and mercy in the midst of our lives. I mean, one of which, and I, 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 don't, I don't want to dwell on this one in particular, um, but think about you know, the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment being honor the Sabbath, keep the Sabbath, keep it holy, right? Well, our whole culture has essentially kicked that one to the curb, right? I mean, some of you remember blue laws, you know, when things weren't allowed to be open on Sunday, except for maybe like a pharmacy or maybe the fire department or something like that, works of necessity. But today, I mean, Sunday has become Saturday the sequel for most of our culture. As a matter of fact, Voltaire, and this might be the only quote I ever have from Voltaire, Voltaire said, for us to destroy Christianity, what we must do is to destroy the Christian Sabbath. We can destroy Christianity by destroying the Christian Sabbath, by essentially undoing the commands and the law of the Lord. Now, in the midst of honoring the Sabbath, loving the Sabbath, if, here's what I mean. If you come and you are worshiping the Lord, and you are spending the day thinking about the Lord, spending time with family, doing works of necessity, loving the things that God loves, I will tell you that you will flourish and you will understand the love and joy of the Lord more than when you do what the world says is important. I'm just telling you, this is just the truth, okay? Again, the idea of, of those who keep his commandment and remember to do his commandments. But there's another um, aspect here, and I think this is probably the biggest one. Obedience, our obedience to the Lord's commandments and to what he calls us to leads us to an assurance of our salvation. Our obedience to the commands of God leads us 
to an assurance of our salvation. Let me, um, let me read for you 1 John. Uh, 1 John says this, and we actually read it in the, um, the first part of it, in the um, assurance of salvation, the assurance of, the pardon of, assurance of pardon. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 says, He is the propitiation for our sins, meaning Jesus, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Verse 3 from the Apostle John says, and this is similar to John 15, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The keeping of God's commandments is actually allowing us to be assured of our salvation. Now, let me say this about assurance of salvation. Almost every Christian, matter of fact, I can't think of any Christians that I know of who at some point in their life have not doubted whether or not they believe. It's just, we go, is that true? Is this, do I really believe this? And there's times in your life where you will feel um, distant from the Lord. There will be times in your life where your assurance of salvation is, is something that you feel like is fleeting. Now, let me um, differentiate two different things. We believe, like, once saved, always saved. If you are in Christ, you are in Christ, and the Father holds you. Jesus holds you in, in John chapter 10, verse 28, that all that the Father gives to me, I will keep, and all that the Father has given to me, I will keep as well. We call that the double lock, right? Like, so if Jesus has got you and God has got you, you know, you will not lose your salvation. You cannot lose it because you can't get out of Jesus's arms. But I'm talking about the assurance of that, the assurance of salvation, feeling like, yes, this is true and I need this. And, and all that the, the Bible tells me is true. I know many of you have doubted your assurance of salvation. But again, in John it says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Um, now, we think about this in this way, our assurance of salvation. Let me, let me quote for you um, again. Uh, J.C. Ryle, where he says the assurance of salvation. He says, few certainly of all the sheep of Christ ever seem to reach this blessed spirit of assurance. Many comparatively believe, but few are persuaded. Many comparatively have saving faith, but few that glorious confidence which shines forth in our text. And he, said, and he, uses, he says there's three different causes to this. He says one common cause, I suspect, is the defective view of the doctrine of justification. That justification is a thing entirely outside of us, and nothing is needful on part but simple faith, and that the weakest believer is as fully justified as the strongest. That's the truth. You can have weak faith, you're justified. You have strong faith, you're justified. But he says this, they appear to forget sometimes that we are saved and justified as sinners, and only as sinners, and that we can never attain to anything higher if we li live to the age of Methuselah. Redeemed sinners, justified sinners, and renewed sinners, doubtless we must be, but sinners, sinners always to the very last. They seem 
Two, to expect that a believer may sometime in his life be in a measure free from corruption and attain to a kind of inward perfection and not finding this angelical state of things in their own hearts, they at once conclude there must be something wrong and they go mourning all their days and are oppressed with fears that they have no part or lot in Christ. So essentially, it's it's this misunderstanding of their justification, thinking that, well, once I'm justified, I will now be sinless. Well, I'm here to tell you, you're a bunch of sinners until we get to glory. Me too, by the way. Me too. I'm chief of the sinners up here, okay? And so we have a, a misunderstanding of the theology that we will not be sinless, but because you see some residing sin, you must go, well, I must not be justified. That's not the case. There's a misunderstanding about this idea of perfection here when perfection is promised in glory. Now, this is the one, these next two are reasons that I think are really, really the key here. Another common cause, I'm afraid, about lack of assurance of salvation is slothfulness about growth in grace. We don't even use the term slothfulness anymore, but you know, laziness about growth in grace. Many appear to me to think that once converted, they have little more to attend to, that a state of salvation is a kind of easy chair in which they may just sit still, lie back, and be happy. They seem to imagine that grace is given to them, that they may enjoy it, and they forget that it is given to be used and employed like a talent. Such people lose sight of the many direct injunctions to increase, to grow, to abound more and more, to add to our faith and the like. And in this do-little condition of mind, I never marvel that they miss assurance. Brothers and sisters, you must always remember there is an inseparable connection between assurance and diligence. Our assurance of salvation is connected to our diligence in the means of grace, in the ordinary means of grace, in coming to church, in praying, in reading our Bible. Doing those things will actually help us. And again, the Bible tells us to grow, to strive, to flourish. And I think that sometimes, sometimes we just sort of feel like, yeah, Jesus has done it all. And I'm just kind of, I need to sit back in my lazy boy and just kind of hang out. The third thing he says about assurance, and this one, this one really hits, hits home, and I think this is the, the biggest deal here, and I see this a lot. Another common cause for a lack of assurance of salvation is an inconsistent walk in life. With grief and sorrow, and this, again, this is Ryle, I feel constrained to say I fear nothing in this day more frequently prevents men and women attaining an assured hope than this inconsistency of life is utterly destructive of great peace of heart. The two things are incompatible. They cannot go together. If you must keep your besetting sins and cannot make up your minds to give them up, if you shrink from cutting off the right hand and plucking out the right eye when required, I will engage you shall have no assurance. A vacillating walk, a backwardness to take a bold and decided line, a readiness to conform to the world, a hesitating witness for Christ, a lingering tone of profession, all these make up a sure recipe for bringing a blight upon the garden of your soul. Well, that's an English poet right there. A blight upon the garden of your soul. It is vain to suppose that you will feel assured and persuaded of your pardon and peace unless you count all God's commandments concerning all things to be right and hate every sin, whether great or small. 
I believe God, our salvation in no sense depends on, I, I believe that he says, I believe that our salvation in no sense depends on our own works. And, he, and then he quotes Ephesians 2. But he says this inconsistency in our lives will dim your eyes and bring clouds between you and the sun. The sun, S-U-N, speaking of the Father, the sun is the same, but you will not be able to see its brightness and enjoy its warmth. It is in the path of well-doing that assurance will come down and meet you. So let me, let me say this. I've seen this many, many times of assurance of salvation. I've seen young men and women um, who've, who've professed faith in Jesus and they have... Um, gone off to college and they, they begin to wonder, is all of this true? Is this true? Is what I was brought up with my family true? Um, I had one particular, I'm not going to say when it was or what it was, but um, I had one young man come to me and, uh, and this is actually, I mean, he came to me and he said, you know, I'm really, really struggling with my faith. And I said, well, okay, well, let's talk about that, right? Let's talk about why you're struggling with your faith. Why you're believing what, what is true or not true. Uh, and as we began to talk about it, he, I said, well, when did you have these particular doubts about your faith? And he said, well, I started having them about three months ago. And I said, is that the day or is that about the same time you started sleeping with your girlfriend? And he went, yeah, it's about this, that's about the same time. I said, do you see how an inconsistent life will cause you to have great guilt and shame in the midst of your life to such a point that you begin to doubt your assurance of salvation? I say that because I've seen that occur. And, and among RUF ministers within our denomination, they have said almost to the man, they have seen college students begin to struggle when there is a specifically... Um, burdensome sin in the midst of their life that is overwhelming them. Let me, let me put it another way. I'll have people in the church who will tell me this. They feel distant from God. They feel distant from, from the Lord. And there may be times where I think we all feel distant from the Lord. And one of the questions I ask them is, have you read your Bible? And almost often they say, no. Have you gone to church? Well, no, I'm I'm struggling in my relationship with God. I'm like, well, by doing, I mean, essentially what you're doing is what Ryle said, you're putting clouds in the way of the sun. You feel no warmth. You see, you have little light because what you're doing is you are putting some sort of besetting sin, some sort of difficulty in the pathway between you and God. I've had men in, in, in different churches who have come up to me and they have said, I'm Again, I'm struggling with the assurance of salvation, and I will ask them, so um, are, are you addicted to pornography? Are you addicted to alcohol? Are you addicted? And almost to a man, what we find is that there is some besetting sin. Now, I'm not saying always. I'm not saying always here, okay? But what I am saying is that a besetting sin will often lead someone to doubt their salvation, to doubt their assurance, to doubt the love of God, to doubt the benefits that God has called us to. Um, the, um, he concludes that quote, he says, you want to be assured of your salvation? Here it is. 
the nearest walker with God or the one who walks closest with God will generally be kept in the greatest peace. The believer who follows the Lord most fully will ordinarily enjoy the most assured hope. Now, many of you, as I talk about obedience, as I talk about these things, you go, I have not obeyed well. I have not obeyed well. And and I'm not talking about perfect obedience. I'm not saying that you have to be completely um, perfect in all these things. So, So what do you do? What do you do in, in, in your heart when you, when you don't want to obey, right? Your 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5 says we're to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. You know, we think about what sin is. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. That idea of any want of conformity unto, it's like, Lord, I'm having a hard time seeing where your commandments are not burdens, but rather they are delights. And so I would call you to this. I would call you to run in prayer to our Father. Run in prayer to our Father and say, Lord, I'm having a hard time obeying. Would you help me? As a matter of fact, I think about um, this particular verse, Psalm 119, um, verse, I believe it's 32, where, it's, where it says, you know, I'll just read it so I don't butcher it. Um, it says, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. <laughs> I love that. I will walk in the way Jesus wants me to walk. I will walk with you when you enlarge my heart. Lord God of heaven, would you enlarge my heart? Because I got a little Grinch-sized heart right now. And I need the who's from Whoville. And and what I mean is, you know, the Apostle Paul, the New Testament, the Old Testament. I need that grace to expand my heart, to enlarge my heart. And Lord, when my heart is enlarged, when I am in love with you and your ways, then I will walk with you because I, I want to be in relationship with you. I want my joy to be fulfilled. And I want the assurance of my salvation to be firm. That's a wonderful place to be. But some of you will say, you know, but... I have blown it this week. I've blown it last week. I seem to blow it every day. I mess up every day. I'm here to tell you that there is grace for you. There is grace from the Lord Jesus Christ for all of us who are disobedient because Jesus was obedient for us. And we have to run back to to Jesus, our Savior. Let me, let me um, quote uh, Dane Ortland here. I love this. This is one of my favorite. He's quoting uh, really John Bunyan here, where he says this. He says, but I am a great sinner, says you. And Jesus quotes from John 6, 37, but I will never cast you out. But, but I'm an old sinner. Jesus says, I'll never cast you out. But I'm a hard-hearted sinner. And Jesus says, I will never cast you out. But I'm a backsliding sinner. And Jesus says, I will never cast you out. But I have served Satan all of my days, says you, and I will know, I will never cast you out. But I have sinned against light, and I will not cast you out. And I have sinned against mercy, and I will not cast you out. And I have no good thing to bring with me, says you. And Jesus says, I will not cast you out. Child of my love, I will not cast you out. He, he says this too. He says, he says, no, 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 wait. Even after all that, you, we say cautiously approaching Jesus because we don't think that we can run to Jesus sometimes. You don't understand. I've really messed up in all kinds of ways. And Jesus responds to us, I know. 
Yeah, but you know most of it, sure, certainly more than what others see, but there's perversity down inside of me that is hidden from everyone. And Jesus says to you, I know it all. Everything you've ever done, everything you've ever thought, everything you thought about doing, everything you knew was wrong, Jesus knows it all. Well, the thing is, you say to Jesus, it isn't just my past, it's my present too. And Jesus says, I understand. But, but I don't know if I can break free of any of this time, any of this stuff very soon. And, and Jesus says, that's the only kind of person I'm here to help. And he says, the, but then you might say to Jesus, but the burden is heavy and heavier all the time. And Jesus says to you, then let me carry it. And then you say to him, but it's too much to bear. And Jesus says, not for me. And then you say, you, you don't get it. My offenses aren't directed towards others. They're against you, Jesus. And Jesus says to you, then I am the one most suited to forgive them. And then you say to him, but the more of the ugliness in me you discover, the sooner you'll get fed up with me. And Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast away. Brothers and sisters, I pray that we would know that. I would pray this for us as a, as a church, that we would obey because we love and that our obedience would lead us into a relationship with the Father and that our obedience would lead us to joy that is, is beyond anything that the world promises and that our obedience to the Lord would lead us to full assurance of our salvation. Because those who walk with the Lord feel his grace and mercy all the more. And when we blow it, I pray that we would run to our Savior Jesus who says, Sinner, I will never cast you out. Come and be embraced by me. Would you pray with me? Father, as we think about our obedience, I pray that we would be steadfast in our obedience. And Father, when we're not, I pray that you would bathe us in mercy and grace. Father, help us. Help us to walk with you. Help us to walk near to you in your word, in prayer, with the community of faith that you have given us here. Father, there may be times when we doubt our salvation. And Father, I pray, Lord, that rather than doubt, we would run to back to obedience. And we would see your word as mercy to our souls. Thank you for Jesus who will never cast us out. Thank you that we can run to him perpetually. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.